Done with my final 20 pager. After two all-nighters in a row, I'm in no physical state to review it right now, so if any of my dear friends want to look over my very last paper of this semester before I submit it in 23 hours, I would adore you. Categorical Identity Shift in Non-State Armed Actors, a case study of the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army, aka, the KOKANG Army. By Perry Landsberg. One complication inherent in the study of non-state armed actors is the difficulty faced by states, organizations, enterprises, academics, and others in classifying such movements. For legal and recognitional purposes, as well as many others, approaching such groups in an official or representative capacity becomes difficult if the nature of the actor is unknown, and the rules and standards governing their actions are unclear or none. Consistent. Understandably, this has often resulted in avoidance of interaction with such groups as a risk limitation measure unless the benefits are clear and the risks are low. Rarely is this the case. To begin to confront these definitional challenges, an ad hoc classification system has arisen in popular imagination, and certain group archetypes are applied more frequently to individual organizations. Labels such as bandits, drug cartels, mafias, terrorists, mercenaries, etc. become attached to groups that, in practice, behave in ways that cross these lines frequently. Often, the dominant label applied to a group will be based on factors such as journalistic observation, academic study, popular imagination, and, in rare cases, self-identification, to say nothing of polemical labels applied by allies and enemies alike. Yet, a non-state armed actor does not exist in permanent stasis. Its lack of legal recognition and inability, or disinterest, in carrying out common state function. S renders it highly fluid and able to adapt to changing circumstances. This may imply internal reorganization, reorientation of mission, or, in some cases, a near-complete change in an actor's self-defining characteristics. Shifting faces, profiles, interests, and capabilities of non-state actors can have direct strategic effects on states and non-states alike, therefore, it is imperative to understand the strategic motivations and incentives behind such shifts when they do occur. In this paper, I will focus on one particular understudied group whose profile has shifted considerably over time. Called the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army, MNDAA, its commonly used nickname of Kokang Army, is perhaps more accurate in describing the lasting threat in various iterations of ethnic Kokang fighters. The MNDAA, and the Kokang people, inhabit a tiny slice of land in Myanmar's far northeast, along the Chinese border. Despite the remoteness and small size of their homeland, roughly 2,000 square kilometers, the Kokang have repeatedly found means to survive as a group, rep. L state authority, and when necessary, assert themselves as a key actor positioned between their two large state neighbors despite the frequently shifting political and economic environment. In order to properly context the shifts seen by the Kokang people in region, I will begin with an assessor. Why overview of their identity and history, before moving into a theoretical framework for understanding changes in their behavior and organization. The amorphous Kokang before the MNDAA. At first glance, the Kokang people and region appear not dissimilar to the myriad other ethnicities inhabiting M. Myanmar's remote upland border regions. As described in James C. Scott's anthropological and historical breakdown of the cross-border Zomia macro region, which encompasses the highlands of Myanmar, Thailand, Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, Northeast India, and Southwest China, the inhabitants of the Kokanga. ND regions surrounding it originated as fugitive, mobile populations, subsisting through fluid and uniquely autonomous economic lifestyles that deliberately avoided, and thus served to occasionally threaten, the sedentary, lowland-based societies that served as a powerful state's furthest civiliza. 
Tional reaches. In more opinionated terms, Scott describes these groups as the first refugees from state power. Yet, for modern geostrategic purposes, the Kokang differ from their neighbors in an important way. Whereas the Shan, Kachin, Hua, Palong, and other related groups trace their origins back to the 10th century and beyond, in some cases, cultural mythologies claim habitation of these regions since the formation of the Earth, the Kokang originated relatively recently. Asterisk asterisk asterisk. In 1618, when a Manchu chieftain named Nurhasi launched an invasion of northeast China, the ruling Ming court was riven with infighting and unprepared to defend themselves. Over successive decades, the Manchus would progressively annex northern China before finally capturing Beijing in 1644, e. Stabilishing the Manchu-led Qing dynasty. Fighting in defense of the retreating Ming was the Nanjing-based Yang clan, an old military family led by one Yang Gaoshou. After Beijing, the Qing marched quickly down towards Nanjing, taking it and displacing Ming loyalist cliques such as the Yangs. Yang Gaoshou followed the retreating forces of the last Ming emperor, Zhu Yuling, as they fled towards Guangdong, then banked westwards towards the remote valleys of Yunnan at the foot of the Zomia region. In order to maintain his army as it retreated further and further away from the centers of the Chinese state and into the empire's diversely populated southwest, the fugitive Ming emperor became increasingly reliant on powerful regional warlords. Yet their non-Han, intensely localist character represented a threat to his ambitions of retaking China proper, and so he balanced their influence by surrounding himself tightly with Han loyalists such as the Yang clan. In 1662, as the Qing finally advanced on Yunnan, the emperor sought personal refuge in Burma, crossing the Salween and traveling to the Burmese capital at Ava, while the Yang clan stayed at the banks of the Salween to defend his escape. At Ava, the emperor was betrayed by his hosts and delivered to Qing emissaries, who brought him back to Yunnan and executed him. The Yang clan, numbering in the thousands, remained stranded in a small territory along the Salween. Unable to return to Qing China, they gradually adopted the survivalist lifestyle and economic profile of the tribes that now surrounded them, and by 1739 they had formed a statelet not unlike the various Shan states of the region, with a community leader, or, Heng, entering into contracts in Alia. NCES with the larger states surrounding them, including Burma and, in 1840, Qing China itself. Despite this clear shift in location, political organization, and allegiance, the Yang clan's descendants, now calling themselves and their region, Kokang, a Shan language term which translates to, nine. Gates, retained Han Chinese culture and continued speaking the Nanjing dialect of Chinese. The Kokang region's combination of remoteness, rich natural resources, and location along possible China-Burma trade routes turned the new statelet into an important transit point. When the British annexed Upper Burma in 1885, they undertook a study of the region and determined that this ethnic Chinese enclave in the Burmese hills should lie on the Chinese side of the border. Twelve years later, it would be incorporated back into British Burma through a small modification of T. He signed a British border treaty, on grounds that more of the trade that took place in the territory flowed west instead of east, and from that time on, the Kokang region has been juridically considered Burmese territory. Asterisk asterisk asterisk. Under the British, the Kokang territory continued to function as the semi-independent statelet it had been for two centuries prior. The hereditary leader, now called a Tsarfa, a Shan language term translating to, Lord of the Sky, entered into agreements which situated Kokang as one of the Numerous federated Shan states, loosely cooperating with central authorities in distant Rangoon. The Kokang became one of a number of states that arbitrage trade and travel between British Burma and southwestern China, but the Kokang retention of Han culture, despite its adoption of Shan governance, 
styles kept them a definably separate group from the numerous Shan courts surrounding them. By the twilight of the colonial era, Kokang's place as an opium cultivation and trade hub had been well established. The British could not extend jurisdictional power anywhere close to the Salween River, let alone across it, and low water levels at high mountainous altitudes rendered the area unfit for rice cultivation. Inhabitants of the Kokang region were able to economically produce tea and opium. The tea trade, however, required access to overland markets and ports to the south, which were largely cut as a result of the outbreak of Burma's internal conflict in the 1950s. Only opium carried significant local and cross-border Chinese demand, and Kokang leaders worked hand-in-glove with the Chinese Kuomintang, and residual KMT-allied warlords who remained in the region after the communist takeover of China, to trade the region's opium harvest for food and other supply. S. This transformative process, from warrior clan refuge, to monarchical statelet, to opium production hub, all occurred under the rule of the same Yang clan which had led the Han incursion to the region three centuries prior. The last descendant of Yang Gaoshou to hold the princely title of Kokang, Edward Yang, was installed as Sarfa in 1949. His brother, Jimmy Yang, became Kokang's chief politician and representative in the Burmese parliament. Outshining both of them, however, was their sister, Opium Kingpin Olive Yang, who organized the first all Kokang armed force aimed at controlling the region's drug trade. Nicknamed Miss Harry Legs, and Uncle Olive due to her masculine accomplishments, her wearing of men's clothes, and her widal. Why known by sexuality, Olive Yang was instrumental in establishing the cross-border trade networks which would define the Golden Triangle. The flow of cash from opium consumers in China, and the flow of CIA-provided weapons to KMT-aligned warlords conducting rearguard actions against the CCP, ALO. D-narcotrafficking armies to regain the local force preponderance they had lost with the rise of powerful states surrounding them. Adding to Olive Yang's legitimacy, and, by her extension, her ability to recruit Kokang fighters to her cartel, was her Yang lineage and status as the current Sarfa's sister. Her army, called, Olive's Boys, were among the first organized narco-traffickers in the entire Sino-Burmese border region. Olive Yang's arrest in the mid-1960s left Jimmy Yang in charge of her army, now renamed the Kokang Revolutionary Forces. This name change reflected a shift in political fortunes. The Burmese government had fallen to a coup conducted by General Ne Win in 1962, who swiftly revoked government recognition of the semi-independent Shan states. The armed force which had been developed to manage the Kokang region's opium trade would be repurposed as an ethnic army, fighting, at least in principle, for the restoration of Kokang's semi-independent status. The situation would soon change again. Ne Win's coup had inspired many lowland Burmese to retreat to the ungoverned northeast and fight in opposition to his government. Flush with funding from Mao's China, the Communist Party of Burma, CPB, absorbed much of this opposition and fought effectively for two decades against Yangon. The offer of higher pay and superior weapons, as well as the lure of a Chinese-inspired ideological movement, convinced many in the Kokang revolutionary forces to join the wider CPB. Many found refuge in an all-Kokang unit led by Kokang commander Feng Kyashin. At the same time Kokang fighters were slipping away from the Yang family's control, so too was the drug trade. Jimmy Yang's lieutenant, Lo Sing Han, reached a deal with central authorities in Yangon to allow his use of public roads across Shan State for the transport of opium. This lucrative arrangement allowed him to build a narco-trafficking network of his own on the Yang family's former roots, and his alliance with the central government in Yangon brought political and military division to the Kokang for the first time. 
This division between pro-government Kokang under Lo and pro-CPB Kokang under Fung peaked in December-January 1971-1972, when the opposing forces fought for control of Kunlong Bridge, which spans the Salween and connects Kokang to the rest of Myanmar. The Tatmada, Army of Myanmar, won the battle thanks to Lo's knowledge of the area, but the rest of the region remained under CPB control. Finally, in 1989, the CPB, long under ethnic Bamar, Lowlander, leadership, faced a mutiny from its ethnic minority lieutenants, who commanded most of the organ. Asians fighting forces. This coup saw the organization break apart into many of the scattered ethnic militias that exist today, and Fung extracted his own co-ethnics to form an all-Kokang armed force, the MNDAA. Soon thereafter, with the help of former rival Lo Sing Han and now freed Olive Yang, he agreed to a ceasefire with Yangon, and the Kokang region was formally designated, Special Region 1, of Shan State, with Fung and the MNDAA administering the territory in agreement with Yangon. Asterisk asterisk asterisk. Since one can draw a clear lineage between iterations of armed Kokang militias through the centuries, then 300 years of Kokang history until 1989 had seen them turn from a Nanjing-based military clique in service to the Ming dynasty. A Chinese political holdout militia in ungoverned territory. A Shan-style princely state. A narco-trafficking cartel under drug lord Olive Yang. An ethnic separatist movement under politician Jimmy Yang. A unit of the rebel Communist Party of Burma. An autonomous ethnic army under Feng Xin, operating under agreement with the Myanmar government. Over the next 30 years until today, they would continue to develop in new directions as the political, economic, and diplomatic ground around them shifted. The dividends of autonomy, and the struggle of state incorporation. Having finally reached both an understanding with the central government of Myanmar and a monopoly on force within the territory, Fung and the MNDAA's two decades of firm control over Kokang between 1989-2009 were a tim. E of unprecedented peace and development. Infrastructure was raised on scales never before seen in the border region, and China helped fund two major highways between the Kokang capital at Laokai and the Yunnan border town of Xinkang. Notably, there remains no major road connecting Kokang with the rest of Myanmar. Investment and business ties between Kokang and markets in Burma and China meant other productive economic outlets were possible for the Kokang people. Of course, old habits do die hard. Fung officially declared opium production legal in Kokang in 1990, despite later adopting laws against it and declaring the region drug-free in 1999. Opium harvesting and heroin refinement provided much of the region's economic surplus between 1989-2009, with the region's 17 known refinery s producing the best opium in Southeast Asia. Heroin and methamphetamine production provided a further economic boost to the area, and new and boutique drugs, such as Yaba, aka, Nazi Speed, due to its alleged development by the Third Reich, became increasingly lucrative in growing tourist market. S across Southeast Asia. Through the Yangon-based conglomerate Peace Myanmar Group, owned by former MNDAA commander Yang Moliang, the MNDAA effectively laundered its profits from narcotics sales to Chinese and Western markets. The Kokang region also produces substantial quantities of jade, which was mined under MNDAA supervision and illicitly smuggled into China by the Asia World Conglomerate, owned by the former drug smuggler, now businessman Lo Sing Han. Lo also helped develop the Kokang region's economy through licit activities that bridged Myanmar and China, such as facilitating above-ground, cross-border trade and overseeing construction of both Sino-Myanmar crude oil and gas pipelines, which linked Kunming to Sitwei by traversing near Kokang Terry. Tori. Finally, Kokang grew into an entertainment and gambling hub for newly wealthy and middle-class Chinese visitors.
Despite gambling being illegal in both Myanmar and mainland China, the functional autonomy of MNDAA-run Kokang allowed for dozens of casinos to operate openly in Laokai, just thr. ee kilometers outside of Yunnan's borders. Aside from whetting the Chinese appetite for gambling, Laokai casinos serve a similar ulterior purpose as those in Macau, as a means of laundering ill-gotten gains, especially those obtained through positions in the Communist Party apparatus. By 2008, the MNDAA's administration of Shan State Special Region 1 appeared more state-like than ever, and in Myanmar's 2008 constitution it was rewarded via the transformation of the region into the Kokang Special Administrative Zone. This administrative shift from Yangon was more than a simple name change, it finally denoted legal ethnonational recognition and rights for the Kokang people within the Burmese state. For the MNDAA, however, this would be a poison pill offer. A corollary to the 2008 Myanmar constitution involved a proposal to convert ceasefire groups, ethnic armies with whom the state had a long-standing peace agreement, including the MNDAA, into official border guard forces of the Tatmada. Fung objected to this proposed incorporation, as did the leaders of a number of other ethnic armies. In response, the Tatmada established relations with his deputy by Zaukin and sympathetic Kokang fighters, and decided to make an example of Fung and the MNDAA by driving them out of power in a three-day operation, occupying Laokai. Remaining MNDAA fighters took refuge across the border, and Bai's splinter group of Kokang fighters underwent yet another shift in profile, this time firmly into the apparatus of a state, as Border Guard Force Hash 1006, responsible for security and national defense in the Kokang SAS. Recognizing the difficulties the Border Guard plan had posed for certain allied ethnic armies, Myanmar President Thane Sein officially scrapped the proposal in 2011, agreeing that while certain armies had indeed converted themselves into Border Guard units, no further armies would be forced to do so. However, amnesty was not granted to Fung or the MNDAA, who remain in hiding on the Chinese side of the border. Despite mounting harassing attacks, limited incursions, and one sustained offensive in early 2015, the MNDAA have not, as of 2019, managed to recover Kokang from the Tatmada and their new allies. Applying an analytical framework, how can we begin to conceptualize the ways in which successive iterations of Kokang militants choose their organizational profile? Perhaps by applying a classic framework of international relations, Kenneth Waltz's levels of analysis, we can observe the forces pulling the cocaine towards different normative directions. The first level of analysis commonly employed by Waltz is man, or the individual leader with responsibility for strategic decision-making. At this level of analysis, we can observe certain personal and ideological predilections at work in the formation of new cocaine armies. Olive Yang was reportedly already involved in the criminal underworld at the time she decided to form her powerful narco-trafficking C. Artel, and her cross-border contacts proved invaluable to the group's success. Her brother, the politician Jimmy Yang, took Olive's group in a decided political direction in his rebranding of the armed network as the Kokang Revolutionary Force, an overt ethnic autonomist group rather than a covert N. Arco-trafficking cartel. In the case of Feng Xin, few doubt that he remains a committed ideological communist, despite his organization's abandonment of political advocacy beyond the Kokang region decades ago. This is evident in his decision to retain the communist-sounding name, Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army. Despite other ethnic armies adopting clear national signifiers, it is further observable in Feng's few documented public appearances, in which he typically dons Mao-style clothing, ANS. Worse to chairman, and conducts military parades similar to those seen in China and North Korea. 
This level of analysis provides a partial but incomplete picture of the forces affecting cocaine armed expression. Asterisk asterisk asterisk. The second level of analysis commonly employed by Waltz is the state. Officially, the cocaine do not administer an independent nation-state within the anarchic international system, however, it is very easy to argue that their immediate environment is more or less anarchic given the permanently nebulous position of Myanmar's peripheral ethnic groups, and the historical lack of representation by the government in Yangon. The Kokang army that exists at any given time has traditionally been the most legitimate and preponderant force among the Kokang people. We can, therefore, briefly analyze it as we would a state. One important factor in Waltz's conception of the priorities of the state is the imperative of self-preservation, this desire exists to no lesser degree within non-state armed actors, as well. Why, for example, would a rebel group or a terrorist organization with a specific end goal in mind, such as political change continue to exist after that goal was achieved, or after it was made clear that those for whom they claimed to be fighting had rejected them? Several possible reasons exist, shifted goalposts, internal bureaucratic inertia, profitability of self-funding activities, or even a simple desire to avoid capture and incarceration. The MNDAA's ideological goal of Kokang autonomy was largely realized in 1989. Why, then, did they continue to exist as essentially missionless warlords, rather than setting up some sort of civilian governance structure? It may be, in my view, a combination of the second and third reasons above. Autonomy had been achieved through a ceasefire with the MNDAA as an organization, and it was simply expected that the organization would go on administering the territory. Beyond that, the networks through which the MNDAA had provisioned itself and traded drugs and contraband were essential for the region's economic development, and only a non-state militia could continue trading in this manner. In this sense, the desire for self-preservation, do we also see the imperative for organizational self-change in the Kokang army? In the 19th century, when Burma-China trade was the dominant economic activity in the region, the Kokang princely state oriented its focus around that. When cross-border trade lessened due to political developments, opium became the driver of economic livelihood, and the Kokang adapted. When administrative autonomy was threatened, the Kokang adapted as well. In the realm of state-centric explanations for Kokang militancy, we see a constant reactive self-preservation play out in response to changes occurring in and around the region. This, too, is a partial but incomplete picture of the forces affecting Kokang armed expression. Asterisk asterisk asterisk. Finally, we come to the third level of analysis commonly employed by Waltz, the international system. For the historical and geographical reasons outlined above, the Kokang have long played an arbitrage role between China and Burma, and their loss of independent political status in the mid-20th century did not change that. In their article, The Warlord is Arbitrager, Ariel I. Aram and Charles King posit that warlords are arbitrageurs, exploiters of boundaries, buying, at one price in one market and, selling, at a higher price in another market and, seek out gradients between different spheres of state authority, among different states, between different religious or cultural groups, and even between different patrons. Indeed, the Kokang way of economic survival, and that of nearly all groups in the Zomia macro region, has been to lev. Arage that which states on either side of them are unable or unwilling to accomplish, or unable to crack down on, or would like to obtain or see occur in regards to each other. Yet this dependency can also exist in the opposite direction. After 20 years of leveraging an alliance with Yangon, the MNDAA, in its present dispossessed form, has become highly reliant on their other neighbor, China, to affect their return to power in their former territory. 
Following the 2009 offensive, Fung and the MNDAA relocated to concealed, dispersed hideouts in Yunnan, and have since conducted their operations from there. They have presumably lost much of the value-generating ability they previously offered when they could administer Kokang. Thus, their continued existence and ability to wage offensive campaigns, such as the months-long 2015 operation, must be analyzed within the parameters of the international system. Given what we know about the Chinese connection to the Kokang, we are forced to consider two possibilities regarding MNDAA support. That the MNDAA is being protected and financed by local Chinese leaders in Yunnan. Smiling face with sunglasses the MNDAA is being protected and financed intentionally by Beijing. While there is ample reason to believe both are partially true, most intelligence estimates gravitate towards the La TTER. Yunnan-based politicians and business leaders do have reason to support the return of the MNDAA, their 2009 defeat resulted in as many as 30,000 refugees crossing into Yunnan, and it meant a loss of gambling and illicit market benefits. However, the scope of Chinese support for the MNDAA goes beyond Yunnan, a China-based internet fundraising campaign for persecuted Chinese in Myanmar, has been unusually permitted to crowdfund freely across the Chinese internet, and holds active donation accounts with the Agricultural Bank of China. Given President Tsai's nationalist push for the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, the ground is fertile for politicization of the Kokang. In real terms, it is believed that Beijing intends to use the MNDAA to coerce Yangon into accepting their demands on a host of key geostrategic IC issues, including the security of Chinese energy and trade to and from the Indian Ocean, naval rights at Burmese ports such as Kyokfu, acceding to Chinese requests in international bodies such as ASEAN and global financial institutions, and tempering the positive trajectory of Myanmar's relatio. NS with Washington. It should be noted that the tiny Kokang threat is not the only one being leveraged, at least three other rebel armies, the Taing National Liberation Army, the Arakan Army, and the Kachin Independence Army, are known to have participated in the 2015 offensive throughout the Kokang. G region. This indicates that these groups work in tandem with the MNDAA, thus, Chinese transfers to the MNDAA are cover for transfers to a wider network of anti-Myanmar rebel groups. In essence, despite the loss of their territory and their ability to conduct many of their former leveraging active ideas, the MNDAA have changed, once again, to provide value and arbitrage within a framework of larger surrounding states. The group now provides a pressuring force for their Chinese hosts, acting as an agent of coercion in pursuit of greater aims that they themselves are not fully invested in. This mission profile matches that of another category of non-state armed actor, the mercenary, whose market provision is a security outcome rather than any material good or ideological goal. A key element of coercion theory is the ability not only to guarantee pain in the event of non-compliance, b. Ut to guarantee a better alternative in the event of compliance. Thus, in order to test whether the MNDAA are truly being utilized in this way by Beijing, one must keep watch on Sino-Burmese relations. Should the policies favored by China come to be adopted by the government in Yangon, we can expect to see a negative correlation in armed activity from the MNDAA and their allies. A positive or neutral correlation, on the other hand, could be indicative of a more complicated relationship between the two, or no clear relationship at all. Disrupting the narrative. Given what we have learned about the Kokang ability to shift between non-state armed actor profiles to suit their ongoing interests, what questions now arise in our approach towards groups that defy easy characterization? The answer to the above question is determined to a large extent by the identity of the party asking it. 
As outlined in the outset of this paper, the dominant label applied to a group is typically applied by journalistic observation, academic study, popular imagination, legal and political interests, and sometimes self-identification. Perhaps by approaching each of these groups in isolation, we can begin to identify more appropriate means of understanding and discussing phenomena such as the Kokang Army, and other notably amorphous non-state armed actors. Journalistic responsibility covers a dual mission of providing accurate and unbiased reporting about topics of local and global importance, while bearing the conceptual limitations of the general public in mind. Effective journalism tells dynamic and important stories, raising awareness and promoting informed opinion. Failing to adhere to basic standards of accuracy, even-handedness, and insight is rightly considered malpractice, however, one might argue that overly detailed, high-context reporting with Lee. TTLE consideration for those uninitiated in complex issues also fails in its mission of raising awareness, by creating a distancing effect with the reader. Well aware of this, journalism is skilled at trading in existing profiles for various types of phenomena, including non-state armed actors, OFTA. And to the detriment of Consider, for example, the starkly different tone used for violence emanating from white supremacist radicals with that emanating from jihadists, the dissimilarities increase when categories of armed actor are clear and clearly different. Tackling chameleon groups such as the Kokang with more descriptive and exact context than warlord, or ethnic army, may be appropriate and educative, but the effect on consumption and comprehension by the general public may weaken the overall impact of the story. Is this a trade-off journalists are willing to make, or should conflict journalism wean itself off of stereotyped narratives more slowly? This speaks, in part, to perceptions of certain actor categories in popular imagination. In addition to journalism, popular perception is informed by countless other factors, one of which is experience. Are there clearer, more vividly remembered examples in popular cultural memory which serve to illustrate the concept of an armed group adopting new specialties and competencies in response? Say to a changing world. Would the more frequent retelling of these alternate historical narratives serve to inculcate the public with a more accurate image of what an armed actor truly is, how they operate and survive, and how to effectively work with or against them? Part of the inability to match popular imagination with operational and strategic reality lies in the legal and political dominance of Western-originated conceptions of legitimacy, autonomy, and sovereignty, even in regions of the world with a more malleable understanding of these concepts. It is difficult, even in an academic sense, to describe the unique vassalage arrangements that governed the various Shan states in pre-colonial Burma, and the imposition of central authority in these regions by colonial and post-colonial powers alike left a legacy of ineffective, aspirational governor. NCE that actors such as ethnic armies and drug cartels rushed to fill. The simple conception of the many, ethnic nationalities, in these remote regions is such, a descriptive term which bears more resemblance to the established legacies of nationalism and ethnicity in Europe than in the Zomia, is an example of an insufficient, externally imposed popular understanding of regional realities. How can one even begin to change such entrenched conceptual legacies? And how can academics, the party most responsible for accurate and detailed analysis of such groups, play a constructive role in Pramat? An organizational and interest-based popular understanding of non-state armed actors, and weaken the static and stereotyped views already prevalent. One possible half-step would be the separation of the object of uncertainty from the entity that could potentially produce it. More specifically, the characterization of the MNDAA as a communist-inspired narco-trafficking insurgency exhibits a, the ideological origins of the armed group, and smiling face with sunglasses the centrality of narcotics in the armed group's operations. 
Both ideological radicalism and the drug trade are entirely valid and appropriate concerns, but in the context of the organization's long-term focus, they are second-tier to more central goals such as self-preservation and ethnic autonomy. Without any understanding of the group's ability and willingness to change, imperfect policy prescriptions are more likely to come to the fore. Conclusion the cocaine have survived this long as an independent entity thanks to drugs, arms, and, importantly, definitional flexibility. Regardless of the current predicament of the MNDAA and the refugees who fled the region with them, their present iteration as a Chinese proxy force operating in a mercenary-like capacity is new and radically different than those of their past, and is motivated by a nimble and malleable understanding of their strategic position. Were this same level of flexibility applied by academics, journalists, politicians, legal experts, and the general public in their own interactions with or about non-state armed actors, a new and potentially more appropriate interactional dynamic could be created.